Hello, friends, and thanks for joining me on this episode 9 of the Unsunday Show. It means a lot to me that you keep coming back. I want to talk in this episode a little bit about confessing sin, about the confession of sin, and the forgiveness of sin, and how all of that measures up. It seems like in a lot of our institutional settings, especially where there's top-down authority involved, that verses like 1 John 1, nine are used to impose an additional layer on us of what it means to be forgiven of our sins and how that's accomplished. It seems that it's used many times as a way to convince us that, yeah, the, the, the cross was sufficient in forgiving our sins, but now that you're a Christian and now that your sins have been forgiven, it's somehow up to you to keep confessing your sins in order to stay forgiven up to that point in time. So I want to look at that a little bit because I think that adds a lot of confusion and I think that that brings us into a lot of unnecessary bondage and in a lot of ways destroys our freedom that we have in Christ. So let's look at it. You know, the Apostle John in his first letter in First John, that's where he made that statement. He said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's First John one nine. I personally think that it would be an understatement to say that this verse has been misunderstood and misapplied throughout much of the church's history. Those in top-down religious positions of authority have wrongly used it, I believe, to insist that we must continually be on high alert and constantly confess our sins in order to receive forgiveness up to that point in time. In other words, it's something to to be repeated over and over and over again. John MacArthur explained his view of 1 John 1.9 this way, quote, It is a subjective, relational kind of forgiveness. It is the restoration to a place of blessing in the eyes of a displeased father. It is a spiritual washing to rid you of the, def- of the defilement caused by sin in your daily walk. The verse is speaking of an ongoing pardon and purification from sin, not the cleansing and forgiveness of salvation. End of quote. And that's from an article of John MacArthur's called, If We Confess Our Sins. I'll be putting a link on this episode to a paper that this that I wrote that this episode's based on. And inside that paper, there will be links to all of these quotes that I'm using. MacArthur continues by saying, quote, The pardon of justification and the washing of regeneration do not eliminate the need for you to deal with the subjective reality of sin in your life. End of quote. So MacArthur insists that 1 John 1.9 is referring to an accumulation of sin caused by my daily walk. In other words, as I live my life, sin just accumulates and requires periodic confession in order to be restored to a father who has become displeased with me in between my confessions because of the accumulated sins that living my life seems to be producing. For him, it is a, quote, subjective, relational kind of forgiveness, end of quote, that depends on my faithfulness to repeatedly and continually confess all my sins in order to receive, quote, ongoing pardon and purification, end of quote. In his own words, I become defiled and unclean just by living my life every day apart from continual confession of sins. For MacArthur, the forgiveness and pardon you received at conversion doesn't, quote, eliminate the need for you to deal with the subjective reality of sin in your life, end of quote. In short, he's saying, you're forgiven, but you're not really forgiven. Desiring God Ministries adds a new layer of confusion to this topic by insisting on this, quote, you're not saved through faith alone. Be killing your sin, end of quote. That appeared on Twitter on October 14th of 2017. 
It seems to me that sin management and behavior modification have become evangelicalism's latest obsession. In our cut-and-paste church and, and Bible cultures, where we're quick to grab a verse out of context and use it as a proof text to shame or guilt someone in, into conformity with our opinion, 1 John 1.9 and confessing sin is certainly not immune. Church leaders and religious organizations present their interpretations of it in sort of a schizophrenic, you're forgiven, but you're not forgiven way that keeps people doubting and confused about where they stand with God. Have they done enough confessing? And who decides what's enough? Who decides when I'm done? Kevin DeYoung adds to the confusion of this conversation when he says, quote, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, nine. We aren't meant to feel borderline miserable all the time. We're meant to live in the joy of our salvation. So when we sin, and we all sin, we confess it, get cleansed, and move on. End of quote. I wholeheartedly agree with DeYoung's first half of that statement, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and that we aren't meant to live a borderline miserable existence, but we're designed to live in the, in the joy of our salvation. No argument from me there. But the second half of that quote is where the train starts to go off the rails as he insists that we need to, quote, get cleansed in order to, quote, move on. In a follow-up article, DeYoung concludes, quote, 1 John 1.9, then, is not just about getting saved. It's also about living as a saved person and enjoying it, end of quote. I think that both MacArthur and DeYoung accurately reflect the opinion of most modern religious institutions. They interpret 1 John 1.9 as an additional step that's required in order to be restored to, quote, a place of blessing in the eyes of a displeased father, end of quote, and to ensure, quote, ongoing pardon and purification from sin, end of quote. But are MacArthur and DeYoung correct? When I sin as a Christian, does getting cleansed from that sin, i.e. forgiveness, and moving on, as DeYoung put it, depend on me confessing it each time in accordance with 1 John 1.9? After all, according to Kevin DeYoung, 1 John 1.9 is, quote, about living as a saved person, end of quote. Do you see the confusion? DeYoung correctly notes that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's in 1 John 1.9. But he then insists that staying cleansed is dependent upon me reconfessing my sins at every point in time that I've sinned anew in order to get cleansed again at that point in time, thus enabling me to move on. This process of ongoing confession of sins in order to be cleansed of all unrighteousness over and over again is assumed to be the normal Christian life, or as DeYoung calls it, living as a saved person and enjoying it. And failing to confess all my sins, according to MacArthur, results in a father who has suddenly become displeased with me due to my lack of performance. But is that what the Apostle John meant in 1 John 1, nine? If ongoing cleansing and forgiveness of all of my sins depends on my ability to continually confess them, what happens if I miss one? What happens if I forget one? What happens if, because of feelings of shame, fear, and regret, or, or condemnation, I willfully omit one. Have I fallen from God's good graces? Am I outside his family because I failed to confess all my sins? Again, it seems schizophrenic to me to believe that all of my sins have been forgiven. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 8 verse 12 said this, quote, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. End of quote. 
It seems a bit schizophrenic to me to believe that all of my sins have been forgiven and forgotten, but not really forgiven, because at the end of the day, or maybe the beginning or middle of the day, forgiveness or cleansing is tied to me confessing my sins over and over with a resulting forgiveness only effectual up to the point in time of my latest confession. Is that how forgiveness of sins works? Did the forgiveness of sins secured by the cross only cover my sins up to the point of my conversion? And then, since that time, it's up to me to keep reconfessing my sins over and over and over and over in order to apply forgiveness up to that point in time? Let's take a closer look at this. The New Testament tells us that forgiveness of sins requires the shedding of blood. Blood is God's currency for forgiving sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's Hebrews 9.22. In God's economy, blood must be shed in order for the forgiveness of sins to be experienced. This begs the question, when was or is the forgiveness of sins accomplished? Perhaps a better way to say it is simply to ask, when was the last time blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins? Was it not at the cross? Does Jesus die all over again every time I sin and then confess that sin? If I think experiencing the ongoing forgiveness of sins is conditional and depends on my confessing each individual sin as a way to get cleansed so that I can move on and feel better about myself, there are some serious holes in my understanding of the cross, my understanding of grace, and my understanding of the gospel. After all, how many times do I have to be cleansed of all unrighteousness? How many times was Jesus' blood shed to cleanse me of all unrighteousness? The answer to both questions is once. Forgiveness of sins isn't progressive. It's once for all. It is finished. You know, one of the things I think we do as just a general practice is we tend to confuse old covenant types with new covenant truths. When we're looking at a passage and we're using cut and paste theology in order to grab a proof text here and a proof text there and paste them all together in our proof text arsenal, we tend to overlook context. And we tend to overlook the difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant. And I think that regarding this discussion, that to some extent, we've confused Old Covenant types with New Covenant truths. Let me explain what I mean. With regards to 1 John 1.9 and the repeated confession of sin that we say is required, whether on purpose or unintentionally, we've applied an Old Covenant picture of the forgiveness of sins the repeated animal sacrifices that could never take away sin or relieve the conscience of the offender, and we've superimposed it on New Covenant passages like 1 John 1.9, of course changing the phraseology along the way to make it fit better. Under the Old Covenant, the repeated sacrifices under the law were a constant reminder of sins that neither took them away nor gave the worshiper a clear conscience regarding their sins. In Hebrews 10 verses 1-4, through 4, we're told, quote, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they have not ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. End of quote. And again, that's Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4. In my opinion, this description of the impotence of the Old Covenant sacrificial system to remove sins sounds dangerously close to how we interpret 1 John 1 9. 
Sure, the cross brought forgiveness of sins to you, but you're only forgiven until you sin again. Then it's up to you to confess your sins again, that is, to repeat the sacrifice of confession, at which time you receive new forgiveness. But you're not really forgiven, because your sins are never really taken away. They're only covered up temporarily until you screw up again. Then the process starts all over, ad infinitum ad nauseum. But something's seriously wrong with this picture. Under the old covenant sacrificial system, sins were temporarily covered but never removed. They were never taken away because, as I noted above, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The old covenant sacrificial system was a picture or illustration pointing to a better, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, which actually did forgive and take away the sins of those who believe. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, and this is Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14, quote, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, end of quote. And again, that's Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. Those who come to Christ are made perfect for all time by Jesus' single offering of himself for their sins. Jesus isn't dying again and again every time I commit a sin. His one sacrifice is sufficient to forgive and take away all my sins. His one sacrifice is all that there is. The new covenant reality to which the old covenant merely pointed was that by Jesus' once-for-all-time death on a cross, the forgiveness of sins was actually accomplished, and there remains no more sacrifice for sins. The work is done. The sacrifice is complete. It's finished, and the result is that our sins, past, present, and future, have been both forgiven and forgotten, and there will never be another sin offering. Or, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, quote, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. End of quote. In other words, the payment for sin is final, it's done. It's finished, and it's never to be repeated. And if my interpretation of 1 John 1, nine doesn't agree with what the rest of Scripture says about Jesus once for all sacrifice for sins, then there's something wrong with my interpretation, and I need to re-examine it. If, as DeYoung puts it, 1 John 1, nine is about me getting cleansed over and over again as part of a normal Christian life, what do I do with all the New Testament passages that tell me I've already been cleansed and forgiven once for all and there's nothing left to do? I don't know about you, but this dilemma confused me for years. I never could reconcile the two in my thinking, as I was told that all of my sins were forgiven, past, present, and future. But I also needed to be confessing my sins to keep short accounts with God and to be forgiven. It doesn't make sense. Are all of my sins forgiven? Have I been made perfect forever by one sacrifice or not? If I have, then what does it mean to add this extra layer on there of misinterpreting, I believe, First John 1, nine, and saying that I need to be confessing over and over and over again in order to receive forgiveness up to that point in time if all of my sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven 2,000 years ago on a cross. How does that work? It never made sense to me. It was always confusing. But before we draw any conclusions to this, let's look at one more layer of the religious forgiveness puzzle. 
that I think adds additional confusion. MacArthur attempts to explain how once-for-all forgiveness of sins and progressive forgiveness of sins can coexist. He explains this by talking about two types of forgiveness. He says, quote, The answer is that divine forgiveness has two aspects. One is the judicial forgiveness God grants as judge. It's the forgiveness God purchased for you by Christ's atonement for your sin. That kind of forgiveness frees you from any threat of eternal condemnation. It is the forgiveness of justification. Such pardon is immediately complete. You'll never need to seek it again. End of quote. So that's MacArthur's explanation of the once-for-all forgiveness of sins. But then he adds this. He says, quote, The other is a parental forgiveness God grants as your father. He is grieved when his children sin. The forgiveness of justification takes care of judicial guilt, but it does not nullify his fatherly displeasure over your sin. End of quote. In other words, for MacArthur, there are two types of forgiveness, judicial and parental. Judicial forgiveness, as he explains it, is what we received at conversion, and parental forgiveness is a progressive, ongoing type of forgiveness that he insists 1 John 1.9 is referring to. In MacArthur's mind, judicial forgiveness is the type of forgiveness that Christ's death secured, but there is also another type of forgiveness that is up to me to obtain via ongoing confession of all of my sins from conversion forward. Failure to do so, or to do so properly, results in God's fatherly displeasure of me, according to MacArthur. But is that the gospel? Are there two types of forgiveness in Scripture? Is the gospel partly God's doing and partly my doing to keep the Father happy and accepting of me and not displeased with me? Am I really to live under that kind of pressure? MacArthur's explanation mysteriously lacks any reference to Scripture. It's not there. So I would ask, chapter and verse, please. Let's talk about context for just a minute. Because when we look at a passage of Scripture, we dare not cut and paste. We dare not take it out of its context and use it as a proof text. And simply by looking at the context of a passage, many times, a lot of our questions can be answered. And I think that's the case with 1 John 1.9 and the confession of sin. I think a closer look at the context will give us an indication of what's going on here and remove the mystery of, of what it means to confess our sins and who should be doing it. I'll start by saying that John knew the people he was writing to. He knew there were unbelievers in the group. In almost every assembly or congregation, there are unbelievers. We're fooling ourselves if we think otherwise. As a former pastor in institutional church settings, I knew that there were usually unbelievers present. With some of them, it was more obvious than with others. And that's the case with John's letter as well. He knew there were unbelievers among them. And the context shows us, I believe clearly, that John opens his letter addressing the unbelievers among the assembly. Phrases like, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness. That's chapter 1, verse 5. And that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. That's chapter 1, verse 3. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Chapter 1, verse 8. All of these point to an unbelieving audience. 
not just an unbelieving audience, but an unbelieving audience holding to an early form of what was called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism didn't come to full bloom until years later, but we can see early forms of it here in the first chapter of John's letter, and even scattered throughout the letter in various places, it seems to be referenced again. But Gnosticism came to eventually have a a wide range of beliefs. But some of the most common teachings were that the material world was evil and the spiritual world was good. Therefore, Jesus couldn't have had a physical body. That would have been bad. That would have been evil. But John confronts that belief with his description of Jesus as one who we've heard, we've seen, we've looked upon, and we've touched. Chapter 1, verse 1. Since the material world was considered evil, sin was irrelevant and in many cases didn't exist. You could do whatever you wanted because the material world didn't matter anyway. John confronts this belief with phrases like, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Chapter 1, verse 8. And, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 1, verse 10. Relative to our conversation, this is where 1 John 1, 9 fits in, quite literally, between verses 8 and 10. And so we move from, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, to, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is not a description of believers, people. This is not a a, a description of a Christian, because Christian Jesus is in you. The word is in you. The message of the gospel is in you. It has taken root and it lives there. And Christian, you have acknowledged your sin. You're not saying that there is no sin. Because if that were the, the case, you would be deceiving yourself, and as as John puts it, the truth would not be in you. But Christian, the truth is in you. These phrases are written to a group of early Gnostic unbelievers within the assembly, who, among other things, denied the existence of sin. But John's plea to them was that they may have fellowship with us, he says. It's a plea to believe given to a group of people who denied the existence of sin and who denied the physical existence, the incarnation of Jesus. It's a plea that if they will recognize their sin and agree with God that we have all sinned and are in need of forgiveness, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a plea to come to Christ directed toward unbelievers. It isn't a directive to believers to keep confessing your sins over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's a one-time confession that brings us into the kingdom. Not only does it bring us into the kingdom, but it keeps us there. The phrase cleanse us that John uses is in the present tense. It means that he continually cleanses us. His one sacrifice forgives and removes all of my sins, past, present, and future, quite literally. There are no additional confessions for justification. There are no additional confessions required because I've fallen out of God's good graces. It doesn't work that way. That's not the gospel. There isn't a judicial forgiveness and a parental forgiveness. Such a distinction is nowhere in Scripture, and it muddies the gospel. So let's ask the question, is the Father displeased with you, Christian? MacArthur insists, quote, Judicial forgiveness deals with sin's penalty. Parental forgiveness deals with sin's consequences. Judicial forgiveness frees us from the condemnation of the righteous, omniscient judge whom we have wronged. Parental forgiveness sets things right with a grieving and displeased 
but loving Father. End of quote. While you talk about turning the simple concept of the forgiveness of sins, the simple concept of the gospel, the simplicity that is in the gospel, you talk about turning that into rocket science so that none of us can really grab it and understand it. I think that's what MacArthur just did. By insisting that there's a judicial forgiveness and a parental forgiveness, he has stained the purity of the gospel and made it unreachable. But Christian, the idea of a father who is displeased with you is outside the realm of the gospel. Christian, there's nothing unclean about you, nor is there anything about you that is displeasing to God. You can't disappoint him. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom in Luke 12, 32. And in Colossians 3, 3, Paul reminds us that our lives are hidden with God in Christ. That's a safe place. And they're never going to be unhidden. By one sacrifice, Christian, you've been made perfect forever. Hebrews 10, 24. This is your identity. This is God's opinion of you. The Father treats you like he treats Jesus. Later in this letter of 1 John, in chapter 4, verse 17, John says this, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. In other words, the Father treats you just like he treats his own son. That's the benefits that you get. And there'll never be a day when that's not true. That will always be true, regardless of the circumstances in your life, regardless of how bad you blow it. Regardless of how bad we screw up, God's opinion of us never changes. He's not disappointed, and he's not requiring you to jump through extra hoops of confessing every sin that you commit in order to stay in his good graces, because he sent his son into the world to take care of that already. And all of your sins, literally, past, present, and future, have been forgiven, Christian, with the result that you get to rest. You get to rest in his love. You get to rest in his mercy with confidence, because as he is, so also are we in this world. That's grace. Let me leave you with one last thought before we close up here. In light of your identity and in light of all that the Father has done for you and in securing your relationship with Him and bringing you into His family and the forgiveness of sins that you enjoy, I would be the last one to discourage you from having honest conversations with your loving Father about your failures and about your struggles, and about your sins. Not because there's anything lacking in your justification, or forgiveness, or because he's somehow displeased with you on some level, but because those conversations can be rich conversations in light of his incredible love for you, and his unconditional acceptance. It can be some of the, some of the best healing times in your life. You know, the Father knows you, he knows everything about you. He knows your failures, he knows your successes, he knows your thoughts. He knows what's going on with you, and he accepts you unconditionally and perfectly. And sometimes conversations about our sins and failures can be the richest moments in our lives, so I would never discourage that. That's not what I'm saying in this episode. What I am saying is that you already possess the perfect forgiveness of all of your sins, past, present, and future, and there are no hoops to jump through. He has done it all, and it truly is finished on your behalf, and you can rest in that. So take that into your day, whatever you face today, whatever you face this week, know that your sins are forgiven, that they were forgiven 2,000 years ago when Jesus made that one, that once for all sacrifice, and that there are no additional hoops that you need to jump through, but you've been set free. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So go have a nice day. Until next time.